You are now tuned in to the VF1 show with me, your host, VF Castro. I'm a veteran American sports journalist and political strategist, so each week I'll be discussing Formula One just a little bit differently. Thank you for spending time with me today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the VF1 show with me, your host, VF Castro. I have a very special guest on today. Uh, her name is Chloe. You might, some of you guys might know her. Some of you may not, but her Instagram handle is Race with Chloe. She's the founder of FemSpeed, which connects women throughout the world with jobs uh, in motorsports. She's studying aerospace engineering at the University of Lancashire in England, where she hopes to one day land a job in Formula One as an engineer. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You're, de- you're the first guest on the VF1 show, so I hope that, uh, that um, we get this thing started uh, in an exciting tone, for sure, especially yeah. after last night's race. Oh my God, don't even get me started. What, what <laughs> happened? <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get into that for sure. I just feel like <laughs> we're all kind of in a daze this morning because of that race. I feel like for you in England it was a really early race. And for us in America, it was really late. I didn't get to bed until four in the morning. What time did you actually get up to watch that race? Oh my God. I got up at six, yeah. um, literally for when the race started. And then, um, yeah, just hope for the best. <laughs> make it through. <laughs> um, and then went straight to work afterwards. So I've been a bit like a robot today, but we move. That's so funny, though, because I feel like in America, we get up, at least for me in in central time, races start at seven or eight in the morning. And so that's around the time I usually have to get up for races anyway. And after a whole day of watching college football on Saturdays during during football season, I'm (laughs) a zombie in the mornings on Sundays. So this it's like Pac-12 after dark ended, which is like our, our West Coast uh, yeah. football teams uh, college teams they play usually uh, one or two games will be really late and those games don't end until maybe 11 sometimes midnight and so it's like we rolled straight into one game into formula one and then there oh was the rain delay and so I turned on another another back oh, 12 after game <laughs> so this oh. morning I woke up and I was like what time is it? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're quite lucky over here because especially in Europe, like most of the races are generally around two or three o'clock. So we're quite lucky that generally every single race that we watch is in the afternoon. I think it's just the select few which are at crazy times for us, but generally it's no big deal. And I think sometimes I'd probably watch the highlights, but for this one, I was like, no, I'm going to get up. I'll do it. I'll make it. I think because there was so much on the line with this race that you wanted to see, is Max going to win? Is Max not going to win? And I think for a lot of people, that's kind of what's maybe to look forward to in these races. Like, you know who the the winner is going to be. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go into the race a little later. There's a lot to unpack with that race. So... Uh, I just want to kind of introduce you and get people to know who you are. You've had a pretty incredible journey so far. So why don't you uh, take us kind of through that and and tell us what made you decide how, you know, whether you wanted to pursue a career in motorsports? Um, So for me, it was never something that I really thought of as a child. I tell people all the time I finished 
high school with no qualification in science. I hated science at school. Um, and it was only till a few years later that I was like, oh, maybe I should do it and see how it goes. And I was cabin crew at the time for British Airways. And I was completely obsessed with the planes and I wanted to know a bit more. So I kind of pursued en- engineering because of that. And then it was only um, a conversation that I'd had with someone and we were talking about F1 and I was saying I'd always been brought up watching it with my dad and I used to go to bike races with my mum and all that kind of stuff that they said, oh, well, you could do, you could work in F1 with an aerospace engineering degree. And I was like, oh my God, I never thought of that. And that was it. It just kind of triggered it. And I went from there and I was like, right, okay, I'm doing it a bit older. So maybe I need to get more experience and look more attractive for when I graduate to employers. So yeah, it's just been a bit of a crazy journey, especially in the last year since I started my first year at university. So yeah, wild ride, but the best. That's always the best. Yeah, I, I kind of have a similar story. I started a little later in life and waited and figured it out. And now I feel like, okay, I know exactly what my purpose is, what I want to do. So I think that should be encouraged. Yeah, for sure. I because, think that, sorry. Go on, go on. I think um, there's so many people that, there's so much pressure on especially younger children in high school and college and going to uni that you need to have it all planned out and I just think that's not the case and you get older and you've got these life experiences and you have a bit more confidence like there's things at uni that I get stuck in with now like a club for motorsports so only I think a couple of girls went and I just threw myself in there and I don't think I would have done that at 18. I feel like at 18 and I, I'm just going to assume this is kind of a global thing that at 18 you're just now an adult <laughs> and yeah. you already have so many societal pressures on you to begin with. Yeah. And suddenly you're forced into having to make these big decisions. Do I go to college? Do I wait out a year or two years and maybe try and get some internships some apprenticeships, trying to figure my life out and, and, and decide how I want to or, or try and decide the life that I I imagine the life that I want to live for the rest of my life. Imagine the career I want to have before you spend all the money to go to college. And and, and I feel like it's, it's completely backwards where kids should be encouraged to, to kind of get some life experiences, figure it out and then go to college, see if it's for them rather than this whole backwards mentality of, if you don't directly go to university after high school, you aren't going to do anything with your life. You're not going to accomplish anything. And we know that's not, that's not true. There's so many things that people can do. And I feel like these careers in social media have really kind of changed how we look at college. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think, you know, there is a, there's sometimes a bit of an unhealthy culture as well of, you know, that nonstop hustle and, it's quite unhealthy as well I think so you know obviously we have to work hard to do what we want to do but I don't think that necessarily means going to university at a young age stressing yourself up to your eyeballs and still having no idea what you want to do so I just think yeah I agree I think you should just go a bit later and figure out what life's about and what you love and what you're passionate about and then and then decide if it's right for you. Well, that kind of goes into the next question I was going to ask you, what has been the most challenging aspect of 
this journey for you? Because I know that a lot of people I've talked to, they, they all have that challenging thing where they just didn't have confidence. They didn't feel like they had the right support system behind them to pursue the things they wanted to do. So they went the, the traditional routes and then they just, they hated it. They were miserable. And so what was that thing for you that's been the most challenging um, in terms of getting to where you're at right now? I think some of it was when I decided that motorsport was the way I wanted to go. I didn't have that many people around me to give me the guidance that knew much about motorsport or works in it at the time, which is why I decided to kind of start talking to people and networking. But I found that really scary because I didn't know what path was the right path. And there was a time where I was unsure whether I should be doing aerospace engineering or something else. And it was a bit difficult because I didn't really know who to ask and who to look for advice from. So I think that was quite daunting for me. And although I was saying, yeah, figure yourself out and go to uni later, I think going as an adult is quite daunting as well because I'm seven years older than most of the people on my course, which is crazy. But- people, people don't realize too that when you're an adult student, you have so many more responsibilities. You have a job, you have, in a lot of cases, you have a career. Some people have entire families to take care of on top of going to school. So if they think, oh, you know, you're just a late bloomer, like there's a lot to be said about people who just test themselves and push themselves as they get older and go back to college and and try and, you know, find a carve out a new life for themselves. Yeah. And I think it's quite, it is scary and it is a bit of a risk um especially as an adult and I don't think it was one that I took lightly was a lot of a lot of consideration for a couple of years before I actually went for it but yeah it's it is crazy but it's also quite nice and it is nice to be with the people that are a bit younger and sometimes it's quite scary when you refer to things (laughs) that they don't even know exist um but it's great it's really good do you think that because of those challenges you had where you didn't really know where to turn to, you didn't really have a lot of guidances, is that what made you want to start FemSpeed? Yeah, that was a huge part of it. Just because I know that there were so many people out there that had no idea. And I even had a couple of people message me on Instagram when I started posting more about motorsports and stuff saying, oh, this is what I'm interested in. And what do you think? And I thought, you know what, like, let's, let's make this a thing where we can just talk to each other and make friends and because it makes you feel better having someone else with you along the way. One of my friends I made through um, a mentorship that I did and we've stuck together the whole time and it's great because someone understands when you're getting job rejections or you're trying to apply for an internship and stuff like that. It's nice to have someone that, that gets it. So FemSpeed was made mostly for that reason, yeah. Awesome. Do you have any advice for women who maybe want to enter this space, but they just, they don't really know how to get started, where to turn to? I mean, this is an extremely intimidating world because there's so many components to Formula One to just everything. Um, I always say to girls, be okay with being the only woman in the room. And I think that's sometimes something that actually can really help us it makes us memorable it makes us stand out and I think it's important to be okay with that but with that you maybe just look for that confidence in yourself that you have those abilities to 
do the things that the men are doing for example for engineering you know you know your stuff as much as anybody else and it's also okay to make some mistakes along the way that's how we learn and it's how we grow just embrace it and enjoy it and see where it takes you I think that is why when when I just got on TikTok a few weeks ago (laughs) I've noticed there are so many women Formula One content creators and so much of the stuff that they come up with is some of it is extremely cringe. Some of it (laughs) is, I'm like, wow, that's actually really funny that, okay, I would not have connected that. I would not have uh, created a bunch of superlatives about Carlos Sainz hair, but (laughs) it's the creativity level that, that I think is on display there. And then you read the comments because of course I'm a journalist. I read comments. This is what I do. And reading the comments, some of the things that these, that these people say, it's just like, it's so, I think it's, it's really shows you that I think if men had created that, if men were doing that, it would be a different, I think, response to the content that they were creating, you know? And, and I think that the fact that women are now getting opportunities to be F1 presenters by just posting a bunch of TikToks. For some reason, I've noticed there's a highly triggered faction of F1 fans that I I just, I think if you're a woman trying to get an F1, you have to, you, you look at that one of two ways. You look at that and say, I don't want to put myself in a position where I could Mm -hmm. face that type of criticism because it does hurt sometimes. Yeah. But then you're like, okay, they're criticizing these people because they're doing something and they're getting out to, they're getting opportunities to potentially launch their dream careers. Yeah. And you kind of have to look at that and say, is that worth putting myself out there and subjecting myself to these negative uh, comments? Yeah. And I think, it is quite a daunting feeling and it's such a shame that it holds people back because I'm sure there's so many talented people out there that are just scared to put themselves out there. But I think it's great. And I I really think social media, especially with Formula One, has it's made me see a different side of content creation and mm. how much it can propel your future that you just, you know, into a career that you maybe didn't even dream of having. I think it's such an amazing tool that all these, you know, these influencers are getting these opportunities and, you know, presenting track TV and all this kind of stuff. I think it's great. And I think that what it's done is in the past, before F1 had this sort of, uh, you know, acceptance of social media, and it hasn't always been this way. They were very closed off in terms of social media because they wanted to be able to control every aspect of the sport. And in recent years, that's completely changed. And so what it's done is it's, it's sort of lifted that veil off F1 where you had to live in, in the UK to be able to apply for these jobs. You had yeah. to be certain places, geographically speaking, in order to even be considered for something. And it's still, it's still that case to this day for, for some things where they require you to be uh, present every single day. But it really has sort of this whole remote working journey that the whole world has been on. I think that with social media, it's forced 
Formula One, it's forced these teams to sort of adapt to how they do things because they understand that there's so much talent around the world. Why are we focusing our talent pool on just this one location when we could literally, we have this untapped reserve of talent yeah. throughout the world. And, and I think that kind of segues us into another section where we talk about um, the schedule. Yeah. And I think something people don't really consider with the scheduling is, is it going to require Formula One to start hiring additional people you know, you've already heard Toto Wolf say that he's not going to be present at as many races next year just because it's impossible. Yeah. How many other teams and, and is F1 itself going to have to adjust to that um, and, and hire more presenters, hire more uh, uh, people on, um, on the pit crew? Um, I think there's a lot of logistical issues that are going to have to that are inevitable with this calendar expansion? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't think that you can physically keep that up. I mean, traveling to all those races, it must be insane. And of course, people do it because they love what they do and they love being there. But I don't think it's attainable for that many races. And from me traveling in my old job, I know that it it's hard. It's tough on your body. And yeah, I just... I think that maybe they should definitely do something like that and have, you know, a second team to rotate and all that kind of stuff. I think it's needed. Well, you said that you were on the cabin crew for British Airways. Can you kind of walk us through, did they have any sort of specific training for you on time zone changes, on endurance training? Like, was there anything that, you know, any wisdom or guidance you could potentially impart on us for how... You're, you're supposed to train your mind and your body for these time changes? Well, they just said to us, really, when you're tired, sleep. When you're hungry, eat. But realistically, no. we can't all do that. I mean, especially in F1. We were quite lucky that we'd land somewhere after a long call and we'd get maybe 24 hours, 48 hours. So you have that time to adjust. I can't imagine how rough it is on the teams where they land and potentially go straight to the track or get a few hours sleep and then into the track so for me I think it was very different because I would always try and stay on the time zone that I was on and just jump straight into it and it was brutal sometimes so yeah I just I wouldn't even know where to start and giving them any help because I just don't know how they do it it's crazy well I know that in Singapore weren't they on British time in Singapore they yeah. adjusted their entire schedule. So every single thing was completely backwards, knowing that the race was going to start so late. But that was supposed to help them adjust yeah, in so a better way. Yeah, they stayed on UK time, but then went to Japan and then had exactly. to move over. So I suppose <laughs> maybe an extra week helped, but maybe it would have helped adjusting to Singapore and then only having a couple of hours to change for Japan. I suppose it's just crazy with all those time zone changes, especially on, you know, double and triple headers where you are constantly doing something different. Well, and something that a lot of fans don't really consider is that you've got for this race. Yeah. People have been away from their families now for two, yeah. two weeks straight. Yeah. yeah. 
And in some cases, it's three weeks. Some yeah. cases, they're gone for well over half the month. Yeah. And this is for, what, seven, eight months now? Yeah. So, it, yeah, you've got... Oh, because of um, preseason testing. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like people think that, oh, well, they've got this, you know, this break. And of course, because China was removed from the schedule and they couldn't find, you know, a filler race or anything for it, that they had this secondary break after the primary break, summer break. But even that, you (laughs) do these people genuinely think that that is enough time to spend with your families? Yeah, it's, I suppose it's not even, let's say it's, bang on two weeks you've got the day of jet lag on the other side and then you've got the day of preparing to go before and I think you know jet lag and constant traveling can mess you up for a couple of days Mm -hmm. before you write again and it is hard I, I mean obviously I can only talk about my experiences before but you know it is difficult when you've got events and things like that you know social or family get-togethers a couple of days after you get home because you're trying to adjust and you want you want it to be quality time but because you're that exhausted it's it's not always right and I know friends in F1 and and the same the same thing you just said they the the second they get home they are so exhausted they just want to sleep and before they know it a nap has turned into pretty much two whole days of them just sleeping to try and adjust their bodies. Yeah. And for you, your boyfriend is in Formula One. Yeah. What has he said about any of this? I mean, he's tired. Um, I think he's just tired. And then he does (laughs) miss home. And I think that's probably something that we talk about um, because it must be hard. And I would feel the same if I was away for two, three weeks at a time. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, he's tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, these again, these are things that people don't really think about is is that there's actually, this is the biggest traveling circus in the entire world. Yeah. And these people, you think that it gets easier for them, they get used to it, they're, you know, it, that, that, that's not true. Let's just, let's just end that debate right now. They do not get used to this. It is exhausting. They are constantly tired. And you know what? This is the thing too that kind of makes me question and hope that F1 is considering hiring significantly more people on the pit crew to sustain this new schedule is that when you're in a pit crew, especially, there are so many things that can go wrong. Yeah. So many things that can go wrong. And you have to be sharp. You have yeah. to be there, present. You cannot be tired. Anything can happen. It, all it takes is one second. And I think that when it comes to the actual endurance training of these pit crew, it's, it's all about muscle memory. It's about that, that, that retention. Mm-hmm. And so it is really difficult to train these people to change tires as quickly as they have to, to, to change front wings as quickly as they have to, and do them in a way that are going to be without fault. Mm -hmm. And the training alone takes such a long time. So I'm not sure. I hope that if they're planning on doing it, they've, they've, they've already started doing that now because I mean, we've, we've seen some horrific pit stops, even, even in recent times. So we know, but 
it, it just, it makes you wonder, is the quality of the racing going to suffer because pit crews are going to be more tired? This is an, an inevitable thing. Yeah, I, well, I also think, I suppose, I think you do mo- motorsports because you love it. And everyone there is there because they all love the same thing. I had a similar conversation, actually, when I was away in Italy for the WTCR. And we all said it's beautiful because everyone is there because they just love what they do. And I think that's probably a big part of it for the teams as well. Well, you know, maybe if you if you don't want to do it, then you don't have to be here. But I'm not quite sure. I assume that if they can't, you know, change crews and that would be the way that it would be. Um, but I hope, yeah, I do hope for their sakes that they get another set and they can just have a bit more rest and be more switched on and ready and prepared for whatever may happen and the pit stops and all the things that comes with it well at the very least have that secondary crew that maybe goes out to the races before the long haul races Mm -hmm. so you can send those sort of those veteran and you can kind of switch it up between veterans and say rookie um you know pit crew type people and then kind of bunch them up and then I don't know how you would do that but yeah (laughs) I mean there has to be there has to be enough people veteran bodies to be able to make sure you have those seamless pit stops but again like you've got some serious long-haul flights this year or coming up next year and oh my god they're crazy oh my god just looking at this calendar it honestly stresses me out only because again you know people enough when I know people enough one yeah and it's like you you've had the conversations that I've had with these people (laughs) and I also think another thing that stuck out for me is you know when it's enough when fans are complaining that it's too much Mm -hmm. and these fans don't necessarily have anyone that they know that works in F1 they just love the sport and watch it on TV but when they're saying that it's too much we know we're pushing it a little bit exactly exactly I think that I think people are more concerned about the quality of the racing going mm-hmm. down. Yeah. Because again, we talk about the fatigue. We talk about all the, the, the travel things that come up. It's, it's, it's bound to happen. Mm-hmm. I really hope F1 gets it together and stops these experimental sort of, you know, yeah. whatever they're doing right now. I genuinely feel like right now it is a money grab. Yeah. Right now it's about how many races we can expand to or how many how many countries rather we can expand to because mm-hmm. these countries are going to give us an influx of cash because these yeah. countries are going to give us an influx of this new fan base. But yeah. at the same time, at what point do they have to assess the racing and assess the actual physical fitness of everyone yeah. on track? And, and I mean, and we're that's... talking about the pit crew, but it's the drivers too, mm-hmm. of course. And, you know, they must be exhausted. And maybe the, it is nice where they can take the families with them and they have that luxury to do that where, you know, not everyone else that works in F1 does. But I can still imagine that it's just exhausting. Well, they also, the things that they have to deal with that pit crew and, and camera people don't have to deal with is yeah. actually participating in all these fan events. Yeah. And it is nonstop. And the more Mm -hmm. money people spend on these races, the more access they want to these drivers. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so at what point are you, are you selling too much of that access where you realize that, okay, your drivers are going to need an entire day to adjust. You have to kind of pull back the scale of these operations in order to focus on the actual health and, and safety of Mm -hmm. every single person involved in formula one. And I think that is when you look at the FIA's sporting rules, Mm -hmm. you have to think about every single rule that is in that book is because of a reaction to something that happened. Yeah. And at what point is this schedule going to start, you know, having an effect on those FIA rules? Yeah. Because if, if you have a driver that gets into a major accident and says, I was exhausted, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely something that needs to be considered above, above everything, really. It's just the fatigue and the tiredness and the safety of the sport. And if the sport isn't safe, then, then what sport do we have? Well, we certainly don't have NASCAR. <laughs> no, no offense to NASCAR, but I think that's one thing growing up in America that we had NASCAR. I was exposed to NASCAR when I was a child. I, we covered NASCAR when I had a radio show back in Nevada many years ago. And yeah. I, I just, I found myself to be so bored. It was just circular racing. Yeah. And yeah, from an engineering standpoint, from, from all that, it, it, was, it was incredible. But at the same time, it was a circle. It was an oval. Yeah. <laughs> racing. Yeah. And at some point, I mean, even the banking at some F1 tracks is, is steeper than yeah. some of these NASCAR tracks. So yeah. from an actual driving perspective, it's like you can, I would get dizzy. You can only watch that for so yeah. long. And that was the thing I loved about F1 was, you know, I kind of have this, this theory that, I mean, you could take a handful of spaghetti, throw it on a board and say, Oh, we've got an F1 track in here somewhere. Yes. Um, I've never thought of it like that. I love that. <laughs> And so, you know, and then they kind of pick around and say, okay, well, you know, how can we make the most of this? But I think that that's what makes F1 so much more exciting because you really have to study the racing. And something I love about Nico Rosberg is that he, on his YouTube, he takes you through the races themselves. He takes you through the chicanes. He takes you through the braking zones. He takes you through everything. And he basically takes you through a racer's mindset and every single thing that goes through your head, all the things you have to consider on these yeah. racetracks. And it's such a cool way of connecting fans to the sport in a way that they might not have, you know, necessarily have access to because most people don't have racing simulators. Yeah. So I love that. And I think that it really shows people how focused you have to be on these races. And yesterday at the, um, uh, Japanese Grand Prix, I think it proved why track memorization is so important. Yeah. You show these drivers and, and closing their eyes and taking you through the tracks and, you know, just the, the, how their hands are on the steering wheel and, and just knowing immediately what to do. And that takes a level of skill that yeah. I don't care who you are. You cannot, you can't criticize F1 drivers and say they're not athletes when that is such a huge component of their job yeah and that's also there's so many things that are tied into that as well it's like for example Singapore the humidity the heat there's all that thrown in you know there's a 
the environmental factors that until I went to Italy with WTCR, I'm going to be completely honest, like I didn't even think about it. And I got there and it was so hot and I was on the grid and then I was down at a team garage and then I was running up to grab the drivers to take them to the podium and I was so hot and I felt so ill by the end of the day. And I just thought, I actually don't know how the pit crew do it. Like, how do we stand there in those, in the race suits, in the, you know, in the pouring down rain or the boiling hot sunshine? I just, I don't know. All I can do is take my hat off to them because I think it's incredible. Well, and these are things that, that, again, general fans don't think of. And I think because F1 has had such a massive rise in popularity uh, in the Netflix effect, really, that mm-hmm. these are all components that fans don't really, they don't understand because maybe they haven't seen enough racing. They haven't been around the sport enough. Maybe they haven't, a lot of them haven't even been to races where yeah. they don't understand how, how the actual race day goes, how the actual uh, practices go. It, it's all Rolex banners and champagne and celebrities. And yeah. I think there's such a huge misconception in what Formula One actually is because of all of the surface stuff that people see and they just think, oh, this is just, this is fabulous. Uh, Miami, yeah. let's, let's talk about all the celebrities that are on, um, um, that are on TV, that they're interviewing yeah. and, and without really any regard for just how hot everyone actually is under those race suits, just yeah. how hot everyone actually is in those garages, but they're trying to keep it together. They're trying to stay hydrated because they understand that one split second could change everything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I just, I kind of, I wonder how F1 can change that narrative and sort of, you know, kind of shift the focus from this, you know, glitz, glamour, Hollywood mm-hmm. thing that F1 is kind of turning into and shift the focus back to what it actually is. We had Monaco for that. We I had think- Monaco for, you know, Tom Brady throwing passes to Daniel Ricardo off a yacht. We had it for that. And now I can only imagine what Vegas is going to bring us. And I'm not being a hater. I love Vegas. But at the same time, there's a lot of, of, of physical pressure that, that comes into this. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I think it can be worrying sometimes because you're right. It has turned into a very Hollywood sport and it's very, you know, what celebrity can we get on the grid and who can we, you know, who can we put here that makes the sport look more fun? And I think sometimes it makes it less accessible for the fans who have been watching F1 since they can remember. I think it makes it harder for them. For example, in Miami, there was no general admission. And most of the true fans come into the sport through general admission. You know, that's all they can afford. And they've saved up all year long to go to this race. And then when tickets go to like £2,500 or dollars for a grandstand ticket, it becomes unattainable to those people that genuinely love the sport and know everything about it and yeah, just support it since the beginning. I think, I mean, you were at Monza and yeah. you saw the chaos that ensued. Yeah. And yeah. is that what F1 fans can look forward to in the future? Because if that's, the future of F1, where they're trying to sell as many tickets as possible, mm-hmm. where they're trying to just, where they're focusing on, on how much money they can make from a race. Again, we talk about the quality of the race going downhill. Mm-hmm. That's a huge component of that. 
But I also think some of it isn't just down to the sport, it's down to the circuits which are hosting the race. I think also the circuits are getting greedy and they're charging way more money than they would normally and they're trying to cram as many fans as they can into one space. And I was quite fortunate in Monza that I didn't have too much of a problem with where my grandstand was. But I had friends in another grandstand and they said there was one tiny exit for three grandstands all leaving at the same time. And it had taken them, I think, around a couple hours to get out of the track. And I just think it's not safe and people aren't enjoying that. My friend wasn't enjoying that. And yeah, I just, I don't think that's what the sport should be about. That's not why we're there. And I think going back to the actual admission For me personally, I love general admission because I think it gives you such, at least at Circuit of the Americas, I'm not sure how it is in in other tracks. I know it varies, but there's, it gives you so many different vantage points to watch the race where you're not in a fixed location. Yeah. And I think that is such a more dynamic way to watch a race because you can go on Friday, you can go on Saturday, and then you can, you can kind of scout around and know exactly where it is you want to watch the race from. Whereas actually having a, a grandstand seat, you're kind of in a fixed location yeah, for you the com- entire race week. Yeah, you've committed to that spot. And, that- <laughs> <laughs> and that's what makes it so fun. But when you're overselling yeah. your, your, your races, it takes away from that. And I know I'm not alone in that, in that, that theory of, of, of how I choose to go to races. Yeah. But again, when, when you're starting to decrease the, um, the race itself mm-hmm. it, decrease the product that these fans are getting. It really kind of makes you wonder, are fans going to be coming back to these races? And it also makes you wonder, is this by design? Is this F1's way of saying, well, okay, well, you can't support the infrastructure. You can't support the fan base. So we're going, we're not going to renew this, this contract with you. And yeah. we're going to add a different race on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a shame because it is potentially damaging those historic circuits. I mean, when I booked Monza, I was so excited because it's the Temple of Speed and it's iconic and it's one of the places that I really wanted to go. It was on my list. So, yeah, we don't want to see those tracks go and the special tracks and, you know, to us as fans as an event that they remember there, you know, even Daniel Ricciardo winning Monza last year. Ugh. It makes you want to go and see where these moments have happened. So, exactly. and you can't get the new track. So, yeah. and, and speaking of the new track, I know Miami is wow. To this day, people still talk about the fake water, like these these oh multi million dollar yachts being inserted into these fake water little whatever they were. Miami yeah. officials have said, "Oh yeah, we're doing that again this year. That was great. Like that was not great. That was an embarrassment." I could not believe it. I my friend sent me the picture and I was like, this is a joke. Like, this has to be a joke. Like, there's someone there that's just... It was I, so I, bad. I, I can't believe it. And it kind of makes me wonder, I'm like, what kind of gimmicky crap can we look forward to in Vegas? And again, <laughs> I love Vegas. Vegas yeah. is... It's, it's one of my cities. But, but I am very concerned about what kind of gimmicky stuff 
is going to go down in Vegas. And, and they're spending a lot of money building up that, that Vegas F1 infrastructure. And I respect yeah. it. But at the same time, it is Vegas. And Vegas is known for bigger, better. Oh, yeah. If yeah. it's not bigger, make it bigger. So yeah. I'm genuinely concerned. And where my biggest concern is, and I have raised this point to a few people in F1, is the actual um, track itself. It's not a track. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a street circuit. And yeah. all of those streets that are planned for the race, mm-hmm. those are very heavily trafficked streets with lots of big trucks that are constantly bringing stuff in and out to the casinos. Yeah, it's so going to be interesting. Yeah, those roads are not the best maintained roads. So, <laughs> so I've got my, I've got my concerns about how yeah. logistically they're going to pull this off. And again, if you're going to expand races, you can absolutely 110% guarantee safety first and foremost. Okay, yeah. fine, whatever, have, have whatever you want, you know, glitter or whatever. Yeah. But that's my concern right now. And again, with Miami, my concern was the heat and that concern was justified. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And I am very interested to see how, how Vegas plays out. And if I could, I would go in a heartbeat. So I'm so excited to just see what, what's going to happen and how they are going to make it all work. And I'm sure they will. And I'm sure they will find a way and yeah, it'll just be, it'll be very interesting. Yeah. I'm just, I'm genuinely concerned about (laughs) (laughs) racing schedule is going to play itself out because again, we talk about the European legacy tracks. We talk about what is going to happen to those tracks if Mm -hmm. they start to be, you know, replaced every, you know, two years or so with these, new tracks and and what it's going to do for the sport and I think that is that Netflix effect and we see that Netflix effect happening a lot in the sport right now for better for worse I think the better part of that is that we're seeing a lot of talent emerge that we maybe wouldn't have seen yeah and that is giving a lot of people an opportunity to really just kind of come into these roles naturally that these are where these opportunities wouldn't have been available in the past Mm -hmm. But again, the downside of that is we talk about the fatigue. We talk about the actual races themselves, these iconic races disappearing from, from the calendar because they maybe can't come up with the infrastructure that F1 feels confident in. And yeah. these are some serious concerns I think that most F1 fans have right now and they're completely yeah. justified. But what do you think about the Netflix effect? Um, I think it's good in the way that it's bringing these new fans into the sport and it's just showing how good F1 is and I would I have friends that will say you know you're really into F1 and I'm thinking I want to start watching it and maybe see I point them towards Netflix because it gives them the idea of the team's dynamic and how they work and how the teams interact with each other and what it's like I think the downside is it's very over dramatized and obviously it has to be it's a tv show they don't want it to be boring <laughs> but I, I think there's like a um I think part of me I feel like there's a lot of like football hooligans like coming into the sport from it um and they want the drama and they want they want the teams to hate each other and the team principles and realistically it's it's not like that 
Um, I don't like that side that it's bringing out, I think. I think that's more of a UK thing. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Because is. we have our football teams here, our sports teams here. And and yeah, you've got you've got some people that, that are a little chaotic when it comes to that stuff, very territorial. But for the most part, I definitely I see what you're saying. Because yeah. I again watching F one, having, you know, this this sort of different viewpoint, I see um I see what you're saying and I, I hope that people kind of can make that connection, but I do yeah. see that a lot online. Yeah. And I think before aggressive over the, um, yeah. Over the F- team stuff. And F1's a friendly sport. And I think we all take pride in the fact that it's a friendly sport and everyone's welcome. Exactly. F- see the F1 before this, it, yeah, you had your people that would kind of chime in and, you know, say yeah. what they wanted to say, but it wasn't to the levels that it is now. Yeah. And I do think that for, I think, fan safety, yeah. perhaps this should be addressed because I think it's only a matter of time before something, it's already happened. It's already mm-hmm. happened at races. You've already had fans that have been accused of saying and doing certain things that are, you know, by all definitions, horrific. Um, yeah it's only a matter of time before that aggressiveness starts to kind of, you know, it's already percolating. So we know the FIA is reactive rather than proactive when it comes to policy, when it comes to really anything, they don't, they don't preemptively think of things that could go wrong. It's like, Oh, well, something went wrong. So we're just letting you guys know that don't do that. That's bad. In fact, we're going to put some stickers on our helmets this weekend or, you know, some decals on the car that say, don't do that. Be better. And that's about as far as, as they take it, unfortunately. See, I think in the UK, um, from what I've heard, though, from... I mean, obviously, before the incidents happen, it must be difficult to control because we don't know that they're going to happen. Yeah. But then, from what I've heard from people attending races after events have happened, they seem to have been a bit... You know, they seem to have been helpful and trying to make sure that people do feel safe in the circuit and I will say it's Silverstone and and in Monza despite obviously the negative stuff I did feel quite safe and the people that I did talk to the stewards and the people that were working in the um like even the food stalls and things like that they did seem quite helpful and you know they cared and they wanted to help and they wanted to make sure people were safe but I think sometimes the execution of that doesn't always play out the way that they want and I think some of it is beyond the FIA's control um but you know it would be nice to see some more things that could help but then at the same time I don't I don't know how we would stop that well I think that gives us a good segue into the race yesterday in terms of the FIA's actual response to things versus you know yeah, what we think their response to things should be. I mean, this is an this is an F one an FIA that every time there's a tragedy, something happens. It's here's all these memorials, yeah, for this tragedy that shouldn't have happened. This is what we've done in the wake of this tragedy to sort of uh, make the sport better, make it safer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yet, Pierre Gasly yesterday driving by that tractor and then the FIA turning around and putting blame onto Pierre for that incident 
Yeah. At the same track that where Jules Bianchi's accident occurred. Yeah. I was shocked to say the least. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I have no words. (laughs) Truly. For the first time in my life, I have no words. I think it was horrifying. And I think to hear, you could see it when he spoke about it afterwards. He was terrified and, yeah, it's... Well, the drivers were terrified too. The drivers fully understood what that meant. And the FIA statement said, uh, alleged breach of Article 57.2, speeding under red flag conditions, car 10, Pierre Gasly, reached speeds up to 250 kph, went under red flag and passing the scene of the accident. But someone posted the actual... um, um, article 57.2 mm-hmm. and there's no actual speed limit defined in that and you also need to think of the human factors that are involved how long before that incident was the red flag deployed how long does that driver have to react while reacting to the conditions that are around them while trying to keep safe while exactly. in the tractor you know what how much time do you have then to process slowing down when you've got all that stuff going on yeah and I think at that speed he had you could see the light going on on his on his steering wheel and just as quickly as that red light went on in almost zero visibility conditions really they were they were following each other's lights yeah then you see this tractor coming out of nowhere first off when any cars are on track, that tractor should have been off track. Yeah, absolutely. In those conditions. Yeah, no, I don't think that it should have been there. And even, you know, because you can't see properly, you have no idea. You know, is it is it stationary? Is it closer to the track than I think? Is it not? How much room do I have? And obviously that's my opinion I have no idea how to drive an F1 car um, but I <laughs> well, assume these are all the things that you're going to be thinking because I, I think I would think those things if I was driving down the motorway right well one of my friends suggested that like if there is going to be any sort of equipment tractor truck you name it on track during these types of conditions you have to light the entire thing up with yeah. massive massive lights that indicate hey this is a this is a tractor this mm-hmm. is something that you need to be fully aware of yeah here are flashing green lights we're not trying to distract you but you will eventually slow down driving past it you will see it it is it will be there yeah. instead you just have traditional brake lights on a tractor who's going to yeah. see that i mean we've all driven in in heavy rain before. Mm-hmm. And you know how hard it can be. This is why people turn their hazard lights on sometimes yeah. while driving in rain, even though they tell you not to. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to see the car in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I can't imagine how that must feel when you are driving. And yeah. and they said that he was he was trying to catch up. He had a pit stop, he was trying to catch up, and that's yeah. why he was traveling the speed that he was traveling. Well, once again, he doesn't have those lights in front of him. Yeah. 
So that tractor would have been the only light he would have seen if yeah. that tractor had been lit up. So if, again, we're talking from a safety perspective, then the FIA needs to condemn itself and say, this is what we need to do. First off, if there's any, any car on track during these types of conditions, we can't have any types of um, um, equipment on track. Yeah. If we have to, we're going to light it up. We'll do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, how, it's about how we learn, isn't it? And this has happened. How do we move forward? And I think the anger is coming from how have we, have we moved forward from 2014 or are we in the same place? And I think that's where most of the anger this weekend has come from because it doesn't feel like we have moved forward no. with safety issues like that. And that's a real tragedy because they spend so much money the FIA does trying to assume things that could go wrong. Yeah. And then for something like this, something so trivial. Yeah. To go wrong. And then them say, Oh yeah, this is partially Pierre Gassi's fault. Like, no, that's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> Do I not think... blame a driver on the same track that took the life of, of a rising star. Yeah. This could have been avoided. And this, mm-hmm. Yeah, just we just need to learn and move forward and just not I just don't know how they would do it. I just don't know how a driver would be able to deal with those conditions and deal yeah. with everything going on at the same time because that race was crazy. There was so much going on and Well and yeah. at the end of the day you have to remember these are race drivers. Yeah. They are trying to race. And every single race matters in terms of you keeping your seat, in terms of um, you keeping your sponsors. Like every single thing matters. These yeah. races matter. And yeah, you're going to drive your ass off. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to try and test your car as much as you can because that is what you're trained to do. You are the yeah. best drivers in the world. And there's only 20 of you on track. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to do things that we might think, oh, well, I can never do that. Yeah, you couldn't do that. You don't have super license. Yeah. This is what these guys do professionally. So yeah. You yeah. can't criticize Pierre Gasly for attempting to race. That is what he was trying to do. And, and you know, yeah, the conditions weren't safe. But again, from my intel, I've been told that they could have started that race earlier, that they knew that type of weather was on radar and that they could have and should have started it earlier. And if they would have, we would have gotten a full race. We would have gotten a dry race at the very least. There would have been some rain at the very end. But they could have started that race a little earlier. And perhaps that is something that those are judgment calls that they have to learn how to make. It might inconvenience some people. But at the same time, if we're going, if the objective here is smart racing, yeah. then those are the calls they have to make. Yeah, for sure. And I think... You know, I can see from their point of view, I can imagine how difficult with such a huge event, how difficult these things would be to change around. And, you know, your fans and obviously the support races and everything else that goes on also come into play. But yeah, I just, I think something has to be done to avoid these conditions. And yeah, we have the tyres to deal with the wet weather, but we can't change the visibility. There's nothing exactly. you can do to prevent that. And it's just ensuring that, okay, if we're going to put these drivers on the track, are they going to be safe? And if the answer is maybe, then I don't think that's good enough. No. Well, and, and Carlos Sainz said, pretty much echoed that statement yesterday or said that statement yesterday. It's just, this is why 
fans criticize us when we don't drive on, you know, we don't want to drive on wet conditions. Well, this is why when you can't see in front of you, it, it takes a potentially, you know, fun situation and turns it into a very dangerous situation very quickly. And so I think it did make that case once and for all why mm-hmm. when drivers say the things that they say and w- when they decide not to race in, in really wet, you know, conditions that this, this makes that, that case in, in one race, in one lap, really, this made that entire case for F1 for those drivers to, to, you know, think the way they do when it comes to, to wet racing. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I just, as long as the sport is safe, then that's, I think as fans as well, that's all we care about. And I think I was watching it in the morning and obviously seeing the rain come down. I was thinking, God, I wonder if these drivers are scared. Cause yeah. I, think, I mean, I know that they're trained to do it and I know that they're, you know, professional drivers. It's like we were saying before, you know, it's not, for me, I would be scared and I, I yeah, I'm not a trained, not a trained <laughs> car driver, but I assume that they would be as well. Yeah, I think at some point you have to realize, again, because of what happened on that track. Yeah. That is the track where I think drivers are going to be more hyper vigilant of everything that could go wrong. Yeah. And because it did go wrong. Yeah. And when you add those conditions, especially and especially after what had just happened a week prior in Singapore. Yeah. You talk about the most chaotic race (laughs) where everything that went wrong, like could have gone wrong, went wrong. And a lot of that had to have still been on the driver's minds and they're trying not to mess up because once again, we're getting towards the end of the season. They want those points. They want to race and they want to race hard. And they understand that maybe, you know, Max, Max has this in the bag. Maybe not this race, the next race. It's inevitable. He has it in the bag, but For those other drivers, every single point matters. For those teams, every single point towards the Constructors' Championship matters. So you've got to know that, okay, we're trying to race. We still have Singapore in our mind. We've got this this track that people think about, and there's an unfortunate, really sad memory that gets Mm -hmm. into people's minds when they think about that track. And so... I don't know. I think from the FIA's perspective, they need to start putting that human element into how they decide to formulate, you know, their strategies for these races and how things are going to go off. Because I think for them, in F1, so much of the decision-making process relies on data. Yeah. It's all about the data. And at some point you have to sit there and say, okay, we can only rely so much now on data. We have to start making decisions that put humans in front of data because yeah. something that I, I think data doesn't really take into account is that, you know, how the, those human emotions and how humans respond to things differently. Yeah, of course. And I mean, we all do. And I, if I'm honest, that's the side of engineering that I'm quite interested in as well is the human performance side of it, because I think it's so important. And it's one thing that I, you know, thought about from being cabin crew and working on planes and how some were more crew friendly than others. And for me, that's a really big part of it. The, you know, for example, the design of the race car is only as good as a driver as well. And you can design a race car to the most amazing standard and it'd be the quickest, safest, amazing thing in the world. But if the driver doesn't work with it, then 
what's the point? And to me, that's a, a really important part of engineering and, and a race. And obviously the FIA as well. So, yeah, it definitely needs to be, yeah, just human factors. <laughs> the most yeah. important part of racing. Exactly, exactly. I There's a lot that the, that the FIA needs to learn from this incident, and I hope they do. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you know, I don't want to see this repeated 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. And I think that if it is repeated again, it means that we've learned absolutely nothing. And, you know, at this point, what's the point of even having these rules? What's the point of even having these conversations? Because it, it's just... You know, I, I feel like we're we're back in 2014 right now, and that's not a good place to be. And you imagine how the racers must feel today. But well, we well, have a we, we move forward, and I hope the FIA show us that we are going to move forward and we see safer racing in the future. And I'm going to keep the faith. I'm going to keep the faith that we will, and it it will stay that safe sport that we all love and have pride in to be determined I think a lot a lot we're gonna we're gonna have this conversation again a year from now yeah after that 2023 gauntlet of a cycle yeah and we'll see what's been learned (laughs) (laughs) but speaking of Max won the championship last night yeah or this morning whichever time zone you were in. <laughs> Does anyone even know what time it is right now? No. Nope. So was that the wildest and most anticlimactic driver's championship in the history? I, I can't believe it. I mean, at the time, I didn't even know. I didn't know that he Nobody was knew. Well, Nobody knew. I you had... Finished. I went downstairs to make a cup of tea and we had the TV on downstairs as well. And I heard him say like, oh, you know, he's world champion. And I was like, what? And went running into that room so quick because in my head, he had one more point. Yeah. Yeah, that's what everybody thought. Yeah, that was crazy. And then mathematically, it showed his manager, I think on the pit wall, Yeah, going over the math. And then they said at the same time he was doing that, Mercedes was also running their math to, yeah. ver- to verify it. I'm like, Mercedes, sit this one out. Like, <laughs> like, we, don't, we don't have a dog in this fight this year. Like, like go have a cup of tea, go relax. But you know what? I feel, I feel sorry for him because obviously he had his controversial win last year and we yeah. all have our own opinions on that. And I think it was a shame to end the season the way that it did. So to this year, I think it was kind of one of those where we know Max is going to win again. He's dominating. He's an amazing driver. I wanted him to get the win that it wasn't controversial or it wasn't yeah. confusing. I wanted him to win and have a big fuss for the sake of him. Just to show that, you know, he can do it. It's not just about a controversial decision, but... And then it just ended up that no one actually knew that he'd won. Well, uh, evidently, uh, Article 6.5 for the 2022 season, uh, it it states the points allotted for shortened races. And it said that limited points increments only apply if a race cannot be resumed. So 
Max, that put Max at 366 points. Only 112 points are left. And because of Charles Leclerc's incident with uh, Sergio Perez, it that five-second penalty essentially put him out of the driver's championship and the de facto yeah. uh, was, uh, was Max. So that was the explanation we were given there. And yeah. you can't really deny that. Nope. Uh, <laughs> so, no. But again, it's like... I wish that they had explained this during the race. Maybe it would have eliminated because everybody's suddenly posting points. Like this is the point structure. This is how much racing has to be uh, concluded in order for this points distribution. So by the end of the race, nobody was even really assuming that we were going to have a world champion. And so when they're back in the cool down room, Max is like, wait, what? I'm champion. It was so anticlimactic and you've got to feel bad for the guy because, you know, we've got this controversy looming. Evidently, the FIA is supposed to release its findings tomorrow uh, or on Monday about the, um, uh, the which, exactly, which teams were involved in the cost cap and to the extent of that. And so, again, it's the controversy and you can't take anything away from Max Verstappen as a driver. No, he's he dominates. Yeah, and he has. I I don't think I have seen a driver who pushes the envelope as much as he does. And I think drivers are afraid that okay, I gotta let this guy go. Yeah, I don't want an incident. You've got to respect that because it's that psychology. And as a driver, if you can master that psychology, then you're going to be a world champion. It's inevitable if you have the car behind you. But. I, I hate the fact that we know how good of a driver he is. And what happened last year, everybody says, oh, Max, asterisk. He's, yeah. not, a, he's not really a champion. That didn't really happen. Um, if Mossy hadn't done what he did, then blah, blah, blah. We can yeah. go on about that for hours. We won't, but <laughs> we could. <laughs> um, and then now this. And you've got to be gutted for him because it's like, can he possibly have one championship where it's just black and white? There's well, no controversy around it. And he just. I mean, this may be next year. <laughs> Maybe next See, year. Again, though, again, though, this is all contingent on the FIA's what? report because that, the penalties for that, if it were another team other than, say, Red Bull, you know, whatever team else is involved, that would be catastrophic. Yeah. So well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, there is a possibility that the, I think that the points that separated Max and Lewis last year were what, eight points. So yeah, there is a possibility that Max could have that driver's championship taken away. I mean, that's something people I, don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about that, but it's a no. possibility based off their own explanation of the infractions and the penalties that, that associate with them. And if I'm being honest, I, think I've never been Max's number one fan um I mean you'll know that we've spoke about obviously the drivers we like and things like that before and I've never been Max's number one fan but I can't get away from the fact that he's an insane driver right and I will say it to everyone and you know you get the comments about Max and you know whoever else and you can't get away from the talent. And I, yeah, I do just genuinely really feel sorry for him. I feel like he deserves to win properly. And he deserves, he deserves a fuss that he is due. 
because obviously even last year there was so much negativity around it and I just yeah I just want him to win for him and I want it to be good and I don't want that title to be taken away from him because he's he's just owed that I feel like if that title were taken from him it wouldn't actually be taken from him it would be one of those things where we all knew it we saw it he raced Lewis Hamilton like Lewis Hamilton has never been tested in his entire career yeah and yeah some rules might have been bent to allow Max such a fast entry into F1 but yeah. the time to debate that has long expired like oh, yeah. that, that those are moot points at this point but yeah, yeah I've got to feel bad for him and you know I have I will say this year I have grown to like Max more because I see him maturing. I see him really kind of growing into this driver that he's so calm. Like he's a different driver. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a big side to him that we've never seen before. And maybe it is that, you know, achieving the world championship, maybe that made him calmer. Maybe. I don't know. He, he made it, he did it. And now he just, carries on I'm I'm not sure but I've I really like Max this year which will shock a lot of my friends when we used to say that out loud. <laughs> I know me too like, me too they're gonna be like has someone drugged Chloe and put her on this podcast like <laughs> she would never say that but I I genuinely um I genuinely have grown to like him a lot this year he's enjoyable he's funny too it's like you yeah. want to know you want to know his life now because you're like okay this isn't some you know angry teenager, angry, you know, early 20 year old. This is a guy who's genuinely grown into himself as a driver. He's entertaining. He carries himself. Well, yeah, he might say some things that we might deem as harsh, but again, so does Lewis. Yeah. They all do. And, and we've got this, I, I have this opinion right now that there is an aggressiveness double standard between Verstappen and George Russell. Yeah. And that George Russell has become really aggressive as a driver, but he's not given the same criticism that Verstappen was given. No, no, not at all. I mean... And again, is it because we're conditioned to not like Verstappen as a villain because of the rules that were bent, because of how... Um, or not bent, but, you know, um, yeah. that allowed him in because he was so young when he got in? And is that that double standard exists because we've kind of grown up with thinking that Verstappen is this villain? Yeah, because I think, you know, especially especially with last year, I think, you know, with, you know, being British, I, I love watching Lewis Wakes. I think he's amazing. I really respect what he stands for in, in racing as well. You know, all mm-hmm. the things that he's done externally outside of racing. I have a lot of respect for Lewis. And yeah, he's British. He's, he's our driver. Um, and I think part of it is that we are kind of conditioned to not like him like Max as much because I don't know if that maybe is a British thing that's brought into that as well but yeah Max is yeah he's impressive this year I'm very impressed yeah I really like him. well I've heard I've heard from some people that they don't like Russell because he's posh that <laughs> they don't like Russell because he's not as relatable um to people on the track he doesn't have a story and I'm like oh god 
Oh, well, if we all need stories, then exactly. Like we don't all need this like sad story. We don't all need to like say, "Oh yeah, we had to battle adversity to get from point A." If we don't all need that, you yes, know, like so let I... let George be George. Yeah, like, we don't. It need is back to story. But again, to... with the double standard in terms of that aggressiveness, though, if you're going to be an F one writer, podcaster, whatever it is. And you're going to have spent the last couple of years criticizing Verstappen and saying that he's too aggressive. He's this, he's that. But then you don't see the kind of the same things developing in George. Like, yeah. Mm, is there some Verstappen vitriol that you need to talk to someone about? Yeah. <laughs> like, because you need most, to get off your chest. Yeah. Most F1 fans have moved on from that. Most F1 fans look at Verstappen now and they're like, okay, I like this guy. I hate to admit it, but I like this guy now. He's cool. But <laughs> yeah, but I will say, and I've um I've said this before to my boyfriend that I don't know if it's also because obviously I want to work in the sport, and I've had experiences with a couple of teams and stuff. I don't know if it's that also makes me look at the sport a lot differently now. It's even yeah. like with the team politics, and you know, last year with Toto and Horner and all that kind of stuff I think you see it very differently when you are getting a bit more involved and you just kind of think of it as effectively as much as it's a race and it's got loads of fans and people obviously pay millions to go and watch it it's also a business and you've got to do what's best for your business and I have a lot of respect for all the different aspects of the sport now as well and you know like we were talking about the FIA before and the decisions and how they deal with things and after being um with WTCR in Italy and seeing a little bit more of the inside work that they do and seeing the FIA and race control and all that kind of stuff I think it opens your eyes as well to as much of as much as we say about the drivers with the human factors we have to pay the same respects to the FIA and there's yeah. a person making that decision and I think and again like to the team principles and stuff like that there's there's so much more than just the race and I think you begin to look at things and the drivers and everything a little bit differently when you go in a little bit deeper it's really weird experience for me because I I feel like I don't have like a team as much as I used to yeah 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 I I know some people in F1 too and it's kind of had that same that same kind of effect on me is that I used to be a huge Mercedes fan and now I see the race differently because I hear different stories I hear different perspectives on what drivers are actually going through off track what teams are experiencing off track and it definitely sheds some light on that human component that a lot of F1 fans don't get to see and I think that's unfortunate but maybe one day F1 or Netflix will kind of lift that veil and and sort of let us know, hey guys, this is what's actually going on behind the scenes. This is what, you know, and I'm really curious yeah. to see how Netflix um, handles that um, uh, that Daniel Ricardo situation going into 2023 because of how it's handled Daniel Ricardo in the past and his team, his decision to jump teams. And it hasn't always been the best. It's been extremely dramatic. And I think that what that does also is it paints these drivers in a, in a way that they know the global response that is going to happen mm-hmm. and they do this by design. Yeah. And I think fans need to know this and fans need to be a little more discerning when it comes to um, 
how they approach how these drivers are painted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think Netflix is a massive part of that. And I think it was earlier on in the year that Netflix had the whole um, Daniel Ricardo and Lando Norris hating each other and all that kind of drama. And I think I, well, I actually didn't watch the episode. I'd seen it all over Instagram and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? Like, I, I'm not for this. I don't want to paint out bad guys over the internet. And yeah, do you know what? Going back a couple of years ago, I, you know, we were talking about the maxing and I wasn't Max's number one fan but I think you just got to see it a bit differently like they're you know they are people driving these cars yeah yeah I mean there's people again they, they don't see this because they only see what they see and and they think oh it's just yeah. one driver and a team principal and a race engineer and I don't know maybe 12 15 people on the pit yeah. crew and and you know some camera people and and some you know some presenters and that's that and yeah. God, the circus, the circus that goes on in F1. Crazy. Thousands of people traveling for this. There's so many people involved in this. And yeah, I do wish that someone, maybe not Netflix, I wish that Formula One internally would come up with its own program that Ooh, yeah, really that kind of shed some, some serious light on what actually goes on. Like you've seen Drive to Survive. You've seen uh, the storylines from that. Now we're going to show you what really goes on in Formula One. And it's a lot yeah. different than you would expect. Yeah, I think that would be a good way. And I think it, it would probably help Yeah, the generations that are trying to get into the sport as well. Show all these different sides to it, all these different roles, like just what it is. And I think it would probably make people love the sport even more. Well, we can only hope because I think that right now F1 is experiencing um, some growing pains. Yeah. And it's making the sport great in some ways. And it's, it's sort of deteriorating the quality of the sport in other ways. And we've talked about that throughout this podcast. And I'm sure that many other people have, have noted these things too on theirs. And, and I hope that, that the FIA is listening. I hope that formula one is listening um, because I do worry about the trajectory of the sport. I do worry about where it's going because I do think that it's becoming less about the drivers and more about the profit. And when that starts to happen, you understand they're operating a business, but without the drivers, you have no business. Yeah. And when you're creating toxic environments that aren't conducive to drivers operating uh, and driving to the best of their ability, to having these crews operate to the best of their ability, then you're inevitably going to have a deteriorated product. Yeah. It's inevitable. So I hope they get their, their acts together because there's this sport is wonderful and it's grown so much, but again, they've, they've got to keep up with the growing pains. Otherwise, you know, (laughs) things are inevitably going to break down, but to wrap this up, I have a trivia question for you. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous for you, but I promise it's it's very easy. <laughs> Out of all of the races on the 2022 calendar, yeah. there are only four races where the trophy presentations are not above the garages. Which of those four races? You've been to one. I'll give you a hint. Okay. So we had Monza. Yeah. Miami. Mm-hmm. Because he had that, I just remember the ridiculously long journey to the podium. That was obnoxious. 
Oh my god, that was ridiculous. <laughs> um, oh my god, I'm not entirely sure on the other two. I'm trying to like, like go over my head really quickly all the different races, but you're gonna have to tell me. <laughs> uh, Bonaco and Mexico. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Of course it's 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 the four M's. Ah, okay. It's, it's, so I feel like once you know it, it's kind of easy to remember it just because they all start with M's. But Monaco apparently is also the only track that fans can't actually run on track to to see the presentation. I mean, I should have definitely known that. <laughs> it's all these little details of F1, but, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun to know. It's fun yeah, to know. I'll be asking people this all the time now. Exactly. I think I will be too, but I mean, they're going to be like, Vanessa, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Stay in your lane, Vanessa. Okay, fine. (laughs) Um, Well, that is all we've got today. Um, Chloe, do you want to plug your social media handles one more time? Yeah. So I'm Race with Chloe and I also have FemSpeed, which if you're a fan or you want to get in the community or just meet some friends and have fun and learn a little bit more about the sport, we're, we're welcoming. We're happy to have everyone involved. So I'd appreciate the follow and I'm sure all the girls would too. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate Thanks. you and uh, look forward to having you on again. Yes, we'll look forward to seeing what happens next year. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much to my guest, Chloe, aka Race with Chloe on Instagram for coming on the show today. I know it was a long one, so thank you guys so much for just hearing our conversation, hearing what we had to say. Uh, I think that everyone, again, enough one comes from so many different backgrounds, so it's always fun to get that perspective. But if you liked the VF1 show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you have any questions or want to follow me for day-to-day banter, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle on both is at the VF Castro. Talk to y'all soon.